need of those listening online. Every need we're aware of, even the needs we don't know, you are more than enough. And so we want to seek our help and strength in you alone. Not look to ourselves, not look to anyone or anywhere else, but that we would put our trust in you. Lord, we need your help to understand this passage of your word clearly. I need your help to speak about it clearly. Nothing less than the Holy Spirit working among us will do that. And so we ask you to grant that. And I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know you yet. Lord, um, they need more than just a little help. They need a miracle of grace to change their hearts and bring them to the Savior. So, Lord, we need all these things, and we can't accomplish any of them on our own strength. We can't come up with our own wisdom. We acknowledge we're dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text for today has some words of warning for those who are God's enemies and some words of encouragement for those who are his people. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 94 as we continue our study of summer psalms. Psalm 94. And we'll look first at God's dealings with his enemies. Verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. So these verses talk about God's people being crushed by the wicked. Those who belong to God are being oppressed and even killed. And the evildoers seem to be getting away with it. Not long ago, I read about Hindu extremists attacking Christians in the Orissa state of India. They burned down houses and burned down churches and they left over 100 believers dead and thousands of believers homeless. And though arrests were made, most of the arsonists went free. They literally got away with murder. And those kind of disturbing stories have been taking place all over the world throughout church history. God's people are often persecuted and there are no consequences for the persecutors. So how do we pray in such a situation? 
And in America, we've been spared that kind of mistreatment, at least so far. And so we don't really have a category for that kind of thing. But what if you're one of those believers in India? You lost your home and maybe lost one of your loved ones because of these arsonists that weren't punished. This isn't just a theoretical question in Psalm 94. Bad things are happening to God's people. And we see the psalmist calling on God to deal justly with those who are wronging his people. Give them the righteous punishment they deserve. Repay them for their evil deeds. Don't let them get away with crushing your people. As we saw a couple weeks ago on Psalm 139, that kind of language shows up in the New Testament. So, for example, in Revelation 6, remember the martyrs are crying out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are Christian martyrs. God doesn't say you shouldn't ask for vengeance. He doesn't say you should just forgive them. He tells them, wait a little longer until the rest of the martyrs are slain and I'll take care of it. So maybe it's just this pause. I'm totally off manuscript, so this is... This is hard for us to grasp as Christians on this side of the cross. So, yes, God is love. Amen. Thank Jesus. That's true. He is the God of mercies, the Father of compassions. He's the God of all grace. Yes, yes, yes. Amen, amen, amen. And he is holy and righteous and just, and he will not tolerate sin and evil. And so just this week... I'll tell you about some conversations I had and a movie I saw. The conversations included someone treated unjustly at work, several examples of computer fraud, a hit and run, and I think there was something else. So that's kind of lower level injustices. Someone wronged you and you, they got away with it. And then we saw a new version of the movie, The Hiding Place, which, if you know the story, is about Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy in a German concentration camp during World War II. And it was disturbing. Uh, There were terrible atrocities that happened in that concentration camp and throughout Germany. And one of the closing scenes is one of the tormentors sees Corey. And they were a little off the way it worked in real life. But the basic point is he wanted forgiveness. And Corey struggled with, how do I forgive this terrible man? And God gave her the enabling grace to do it. But he approached her and asked for her forgiveness. But what about those who don't care about your forgiveness, who don't repent, who don't want Jesus, and inflict horrible things on God's people? Do we have a category for that? Does God just sweep that under the rug because he's love? 
would that be love? Or in his holiness and justice, does he repay evil that is not repented of and forgiven by Christ? Is God holy? And the answer is yes. So yes, he is love, and yes, he is holy. The cross resolves that. That's how a holy God can forgive sinners like us. He didn't just say, I forgive everything, no problem. It's sin must be punished. Sin must be judged. It must be condemned. Someone has to pay the price, and that'll be Jesus or the sinner, but it must be punished. So we need to have a category that God is just and will deal appropriately with injustice at the right time and in the right way if it is not repented of and forgiveness is not sought from Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, because sometimes we get lost there and I don't want us to lose our way. So, yes, we can pray that God would grant repentance to those who oppose him and his people. Yes, we can pray they'll seek forgiveness in Christ. But what if they refuse to repent? What if they say like the people in verse 7 are saying, we don't need to worry, God doesn't see this, or he doesn't, if he does see it, he doesn't care about what we're doing. So no problem. And so the next paragraph is a word of warning to proud evildoers back in Psalm 94, verses 8 through 11. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. So those who are wronging God's people are told to pay heed, which means pay attention, listen carefully, take this seriously. God sees everything. He hears everything. He knows everything. And if you refuse to listen, a time will come when it is too late for a remedy and you will be destroyed, which is Verses 20 through 23. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you, one which devises mischief by decree? They band together, they band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He, God, has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. So here's a, the, the wrong that's happening. Here's a call. Turn. Don't keep going this way. And the consequences, if you don't turn, you will be destroyed. A while before you get to Niagara Falls, there is a sign by the river that says, you are approaching the point of no return. I've actually seen it. We took a tour on the Niagara River, and you can actually see this great big sign. <laughs> and I'm glad the guy on our boat listened. But the point is, if you don't turn back by the time you get to that spot in the river, you will not be able to escape going over the falls. 
So if you pay heed to the warning, you will survive. If you ignore the warning, you will be destroyed. And it's similar to what we have in this text. If those who oppose God people and oppose God himself don't pay heed to the warnings like verse 8 and all throughout the Bible, they will be destroyed. But if they will turn from their evil ways and turn to God, he will have mercy. So in Isaiah 55, for example, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So there is hope, there is mercy, there is pardon. If you turn, if you repent, if you go to God, yes. But if you refuse, you will be destroyed. Well, next we see God's dealings with his people back in Psalm 94. Start verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So here are some reassuring words for God's afflicted people. First, a word of blessing. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. So, blessed means truly happy in the fullest sense of the word. And the word discipline or chasten is training and instruction, including but not only corrective measures that shape a person's character. Now, why would we consider ourselves blessed, truly happy, if we experience the Lord's discipline and Part of the answer for that is in Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn to that passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning at verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Why not? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he 
disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So here's three reasons we can see discipline as a blessing. First, it is evidence of sonship. It confirms we belong to God's family. So we had a plug for Awana this morning, and just over the years of doing Awana, I've been kicked, hit, back-talked, all kinds of things by Awana kids. But I've never spanked any of them. Why not? Because they're not my kids. Can't do that. But if one of my own kids kicks or hits or back-talks, they will get a spanking. It's evidence of sonship to be disciplined. You're not in God's family if you don't receive that training from him. Second, it is an expression of God's love. Just as parents love their children enough to discipline them, so God, our Heavenly Father, disciplines his children because he loves them. And third, discipline is essential for our ultimate good. It is part of the process of bringing about holiness, being set apart more and more from sin and becoming more and more like Christ. I shared about Jeff and Sharon Newburn during the Job series. If you remember, they lost their son, Zach, at the age of four, and then a year and a half later, their six-month-old daughter, Elizabeth. And here's what Jeff wrote to me two years after those tragedies. I was recently thinking of the passage on discipline in Hebrews 12, the one we just read. Where God's discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Losing our two kids has been hard. But it has been the tool God has used to help make us more like his son. He is good even when we don't understand and even when we don't like it. So that's not an armchair quarterback. That's someone who's gone through some deep waters of trial. And with the benefit of hindsight and a lot of grace, he can say, it was a tool God used to make us more like Jesus. So in addition to a word of blessedness, there's a word of hope. And I love the definition from Randy Alcorn. Hope is believing that one day, even if today is not that day, that God will set all things right. It won't always be the way it is now. A day is coming when the Lord will grant relief from the days of adversity. That's right in Psalm 94. And also will deal justly with the wicked. It's similar to what we find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll start at verse 4. These are very new Christians. 
like maybe a few months old in Christ. Starting in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Remember Paul had to leave Thessalonica because it was getting really rough there. He drove them out of town. He leaves behind this band of new believers and they are still getting hammered by persecution and affliction. And he's writing a letter to encourage them. And he says, I understand you're doing well, you're persevering. And then he says, verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So he's saying, hang in there. A day is coming. You'll get relief. I'll get relief. And the persecutors will get their just reward. God's going to settle the accounts here. So hang in there. And Psalm 94 says, a day is coming when judgment will again be righteous. It's often unfair now. Bad guys, bad guys get away with bad things all the time. But one day, God will restore perfect justice for his people and he will set all things right. And along with a word of blessing and a word of hope, we see a word of promise. Look at verse 14. The Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. This is one of God's great and precious promises. No matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter who else might bail out on us, the Lord has made a promise that he cannot break. He says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Ever. So last week in Sunday school, we were in 2 Timothy and we read verse 16 and 17. Paul says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And we mentioned the old hymn, Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. And Paul says, Yeah. <laughs> my friends ditched me when I needed them. But Jesus was there. And the same is true as that. Maybe your friends have ditched you too when you needed them. They weren't there when you needed them. But the Lord will never leave us. We can always count on him to be with us no matter what. Well, after talking about God's dealings with his enemies and his dealings with his people, we see a testimony about the Lord's dealings with the psalmist, back in Psalm 94. First, the Lord helped me when I was in need. Verse 17, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. In any given week, we might need some help with something, lifting something heavy, doing some household chores, maybe technology issues, 
And so we ask someone to give us a hand. And often that kind of help is just something that makes it easier or less frustrating than it would be if we had to do it ourselves. But the point is, we could still do it on our own. It would just take a little longer or a little more effort. But sometimes there's nothing we can do at all. So years ago, I had a flat tire right across the street in the parking lot. So I got out the, the tire iron, and I tried as hard as I could to get those lug nuts off. <laughs> I am really trying my best because I want to fix this stupid flat tire. And they wouldn't budge at all. It, it, I did not have enough strength to loosen those lug nuts. I needed help more than what I was able to do. And that's the kind of help the psalmist needed in this verse. He's not just saying, I've got it, I've got it. Might take a little longer, but I can handle this. He says, unless the Lord had helped me, my soul would have soon dwelt in the boat of silence. In other words, either I would have lived through this crisis, it was either literally a matter of life or death, or I would have been at a complete loss for words. I would have been shamed into silence by defeat. But either way, he desperately needed God's help. He couldn't help himself. No one else could help him. But the Lord intervened in his time of great need. And the Lord is ready, willing, and able to help us. We sang very deliberately this morning, Lord, I need you. How often? Every hour I need you. And I think you could even go less than an hour. Is that true or is that just poetic? It's so true. Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. And we know that verse, maybe you have it underlined in your Bible. But there are times in our lives when we feel how true that is. We can't do anything here, Lord. <laughs> I can't even think of what I would do, let alone have the strength to do it. I can't figure out this difficult situation in our family. I can't deal with this challenging situation at work. I can't handle this overwhelming trial I'm going through. I can't do any of this on my own, Lord. I need your help. We are completely dependent on the Lord's help. So here are three encouraging verses that assure us his help is available. So first, Psalm 46, 1. Let's flip back a few psalms. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I have a footnote that says, abundantly available for help. So that's good news. You don't get put on hold. He's abundantly available for help. Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. 
Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. No doubt about it. You can count on it. I will help you. And last, Hebrews 4, 16. How do we appropriate this help that's available? Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you're in a time of need, you need help and grace. It's found by asking for it at the throne of grace because of Jesus. So the Lord not only helped me when I was in great need, he held me when I was slipping. Verse 18, if I should say my foot has slipped or my foot slips, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. So we all understand the imagery of feet slipping. We're going down some stairs. We miss a step, kind of lose our balance, and are dangerously close to a wipeout. And the psalmist is saying, I was shaken up. I felt like I wasn't going to be able to stay on my feet. But the Lord, in his loving kindness, held on to me and kept me from falling. We see something similar to Psalm 73. If you want to turn over to that passage. It says, Asaph. And he starts off saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling my steps had almost slipped. It was close, for I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. So I'm slipping, I'm falling, I'm going down, but the Lord held me. And so this is Matthew Henry's comment on those verses. Though God has sometimes written bitter things against me, yet he has still held me by my right hand, both to keep me that I should not desert him or fly off from him, and to prevent my sinking and fainting under my burdens or losing my way. If we have been kept in the way of God, we must own ourselves indebted to the free grace of God for our preservation my feet were almost gone. They would have been quite gone past recovery except for the fact that you held me by my right hand and kept me from falling. So we kind of talked about that in Sunday school this morning. We need to hang on. Our grip is often weak. The good news is he holds on to us and holds us fast. And third, the Lord consoled me when I was anxious. Verse 18. Excuse me, 19. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. So many of us here know what it's like to have anxious thoughts. We worry about what might happen in the future. Will we have enough money? Will the kids turn out all right? Will this health issue get better or worse? 
Maybe you've noticed we don't usually have just one anxious thought at a time. I tell people it's like Lay's potato chips. You can't eat just one, if you remember that old commercial. They, they don't just come by themselves. One what if leads to another what if. And before you know it, we've got a whole multitude of anxious thoughts banging around in our heads. Or as the ESV puts it, the cares of my heart are many. So I'm just that one or a couple. I've got a lot of cares. I've got a lot of anxious thoughts going on here. So what do we do? And the psalmist admits he's had plenty of anxious thoughts, but he says the Lord's consolations not only calmed my soul, but they delighted or cheered my soul. So what are consolations? And maybe we think of a consolation prize if we don't win first place or a consolation bracket in a tournament if we lose a game in the early rounds. So Webster's Dictionary says consolation is that which comforts or cheers the mind in distress. One consoles another in his trouble by considerations adapted to sustain and soothe the spirit. So God has consolations and they are sufficient to comfort and cheer us in times of distress. They are adapted to calm and sustain our spirits in spite of all the anxious thoughts that are trying to take over. So the question isn't, is there anything to worry about? We can always come up with some reasons to be anxious. The question is, are there better and stronger reasons to rest in God's promises? And we all know the right answer in our heads. But it's a fight of faith to trust what God says instead of what our feelings are saying at times like that. You may remember the words of the old hymn, Day by Day. Help me then in every tribulation. Tribulation is trouble, distress, affliction. Help me. So to trust your promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolations offered me within your holy word. God's consolations are found in God's words, which means the better we know God's promises, the better we will be able to fight off anxious thoughts. So here's Matthew Henry again. Divine consolations are the effectual or effective relief of troubled spirits. In the multitude of my sorrowful, apprehensive, fearful thoughts, thy comforts delight my soul. And they are never more delightful than when they come in so seasonably, so well-timed, to silence my unquiet thoughts 
and keep my mind easy. The world's comforts give but little delight to the soul when it is hurried with melancholy thoughts. But God's comforts will reach the soul and will bring that peace and that pleasure which the smiles of the world cannot give and which the frowns of the world cannot take away. So we can experience those kind of consolations and they're found in his word. And so the better we know his word, the better we'll be able to experience those fear-fighting, anxiety-fighting promises. I read a quote, and it's by Kent Hughes. He says, a lot of Christians don't know the word of God well enough to survive a skin knee. And we're, we're talking about things bigger than skin knees now. <laughs> talking about afflictions and troubles and persecution and all kinds. We need to know the word. <laughs> we're not just going to survive, not even just be calmed, but actually experience delight or cheer or... Comfort in God's promises. Well, as we close, we need to understand that we are either one of God's people or one of God's enemies. There is no in-between. And we all start off as God's enemies. I want to take you to Romans 5 as we wrap it up here. Romans 5. Beginning at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we are at odds with God and we are absolutely helpless to fix the problem. When it says why we were still helpless, it doesn't mean we can't do much. It means we can't do anything at all. But we see God's great love and his great mercy demonstrated in the death of Christ. And it tells us he died for or in the place of or as a substitute for sinners like us. Ungodly people like us. And if God is showing you, you don't have a relationship with him, acknowledge, I'm not on good terms with God because of my sins. Isaiah 59.2 says, your sins have made a separation or a barrier between you and your God. Turn from sin and turn from trying to earn God's acceptance by something you can do. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you've been saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Trust in Christ alone to rescue you from sin and reconcile you to God. Jesus says in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we were enemies and help us to make things right.
I thank you that in your love and grace you sent Christ to take away the barrier of our sin, to bring reconciliation about. And many of us in this room know we have peace with you because of Christ and only because of Christ. I pray for anyone who's here who is still an enemy outside of your family, still at odds with you. Lord, would your grace overcome all their objections, all their unbelief, bring them to saving faith in Christ. And Lord, for your children this morning, we pray for more grace. Grace to trust your promises. Grace to experience your consolations. Grace to fight temptation. Grace to endure hardship. We need you for all of those things, Lord. And so we pray your grace would be poured out on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.